This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Welcome to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast, the podcast that brings healthcare innovations from around the country to your podcasting app. Today is a special breaking news edition about the recent (laughs) HHF awards that health centers are receiving. So joining me today to help me break this down and talk about how to use awards strategically is Amanda Laramie from Coleman Associates. Hi. Amanda is, of course, a longtime friend and occasional producer of the pod. So welcome, Amanda. So first up, Amanda, what the heck is HHF funding? Yeah, so HHF funding, you might also hear it term like a HRSA award, which is HRSA, just most people know this, but stands for Health Resources and Services Administration. The HHF award is part of the American Rescue Plan Act that was passed earlier this year. This money, HHF funds, are earmarked for FQHCs or federally qualified health centers to receive funding that they can use in the next two years. So it's a one-time allotment of funding, which will help health centers recover from what has been a really challenging and difficult year with the pandemic and come out of it like building back their capacity and really setting themselves up for the future. So it's a pretty big pot of money. It's $6.1 billion spread out amongst FQHCs across the country to help them get back on their feet. And not only that, like get better than they ever were before, because it's this massive investment in their operations. And the interesting thing about this funding is that there are limitations about what you can spend on like building new buildings and things like that. So it really demands that you invest in your staff, invest in your existing infrastructure to make it better than it ever was. Right. I mean, one thing that's interesting, and so there, there were other funds that came out last year, right? There were HAD funds. There were other funding coming out to help health centers. Those funds with COVID were much more specific. The exciting thing with this one is even though it's, it's deemed like pandemic recovery and capacity building, it has a little bit broader context as part of that just recovery. You know, health centers have been receiving funding, but now that we're in the vaccination phase, the idea with part of this funding as well was for it to go towards health centers to make sure they're vaccinating everybody and especially reaching those hardest to reach populations that FQHCs serve who are more at risk and who need vaccinations. And so that was part of the idea with this American Rescue Plan Act, but it's also just the the recovery is huge. It's like, let's FQHCVs serve so many people in this country. Let's make sure they're primed to serve them, not just this year, but next year. And frankly, like 10 years down the road, because that's how exciting and uh, generous this award money is. Yeah. And so amongst Coleman Associates, like what we've been talking about is this idea of sort of 
future-proofing your health center and thinking about, like you said, using this money as a springboard instead of just getting you back to where you were before is like getting you back better than ever. And really thinking about what the needs are for health centers in the next 15 years and what's going to be happening. And I think there's some interesting pieces that we wanted to talk about today. So there's two big buckets um, that I want to talk about in terms of thinking about future-proofing. And I'm also going to tie them to the idea of COVID-19 and what that recovery looks like, because that's really important for actually submitting for funding and thinking about how this all ties to both COVID-19 and the future-proofing. So the two big buckets that I wanted to talk about today are investing in staff. um, And I thinking about investing in staff and this idea of human infrastructure, and then Mm -hmm. also thinking about more of like, the physical slash digital infrastructure, since digital and physical at this point are very interchangeable. And those are kind of the two areas I'm thinking about most. What are your favorite ideas in terms of investing in human infrastructure? I mean, this one is huge. I mean, I I will even say from reading through the American Rescue Plan Act, this like workforce development is, is listed in there. It's like expanding, establishing, sustaining your staff is huge. And I you know, as, as part of the the bigger infrastructure bill that is come or is, you know, set to come soon if it gets passed, but Biden Harris's infrastructure bill, a lot of it is investing in humans. I mean, a lot of it is thinking about who works at FQHCs, you know, who who are the these folks who've put themselves on the front lines of this pandemic, who were the ones who couldn't work from home, who had to keep going into work, even, you know, back in March and April of 2020. How do we keep investing in them? Not only because they're our most loyal staff who were literally on the front lines of this pandemic, but who are also like so important for continuing the efforts of these federally qualified health centers. And so some of my favorite ideas for investing in staff have to do with giving them training to prop them up, to make them to have marketability if they were to switch jobs down the road, if they're like learning new pieces of their job. It's it's thinking about DEI initiatives, which Adrian, I want you to talk about more because you've been thinking a lot about this. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's something that I think everybody is thinking about since the death of George Floyd is like, how do we help to mm-hmm. shift these racial inequities, particularly health disparities that relate to race? And I, I'm glad you brought this up, Amanda, because I think this ties so beautifully to the idea of workforce development, because the cool thing about FQHCs is is on average, and this comes from uh, NAC data from 2017, is every dollar that you invest into a federally qualified health center reinvests or adds about five and a half dollars to the local economy, which is some of the best investment that you can make, frankly, Um, especially because FQHCs tend to work in communities that have been historically divested from. And so not only can you use this money to specifically invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts or DEI efforts, is just spending money to invest in your staff is like a DEI effort, which I think is so interesting. And there's so many ways to invest in staff. I mean, the, the tricky part with the funding, whatever you decide to invest, it is a two-year spending limit. So how you have to report your funding is that you're using it within two years. What I think a lot of health centers would want to do is just say, we're going to give a raise to everybody. And you could do that, but in two years, you're kind of stuck because you have to make sure you can support that raise for years in perpetuity. Investing in staff 
app is a really, really great idea. Just be careful. Just be careful you don't sign up for anything that you can't support down the road because that would be really hard to take back for your staff. But things like like training around how they're utilizing their job, for example, like I used to work in women's health. We had always talked about training medical assistants to be able to do ultrasound or like investing in sending your providers to some really neat like conferences or trainings or places to get CMEs or continuing education units. If there's ways that you want to develop the staff that you want to stick around, now is the time to do that. I agree with everything you said. And then if I can just build on it is, yeah. you know, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is especially right now, everyone I've talked to are short on MAs in particular, medical assistants. You know, some of the organizations that we had worked with, I'm thinking even back like three or four years ago that are the most successful is those folks that train their own MAs. And I, yes. I'm conscientious of the part that you talked about, about you have to be, you have to make sure that you can sustain these investments, but this would be a really great time to like hire community members that are not yet medical assistants and send them to medical assistant school, right? Is yeah. like that because yeah. then you can choose people who are really invested in the community, really invested in your patients, especially speaking languages that are prevalent in your community. It's so important. It's like, do that. Think about all the languages you serve in your community and make sure you're hiring people who speak those languages or give training to be interpreters. I mean, that just made me think like giving even someone who speaks the language, but isn't a medical interpreter, you could get them to medical interpreter certification to be able to be provide interpretation services. That is a long-term investment that is going to engender loyalty from your staff members and really help your community as it makes it that more patient-centered care that there's a lot of evidence that, you know, providing care in the language that patients prefer, it increases the quality of care and it helps to decrease health disparities. And so like all of these things are really tied together and make a huge difference. And Adrian, the only other example I was going to give that you just made me think of was there's another organization where we're working with who's not only struggling to like fill medical assistant roles, but dental assistants are yeah. historically hard to find and um, fill in positions. And so I think the same recommendation goes for them um, because if it's hard to hire them, just think about your pipeline for training. And now is the time to like send those you know, maybe it's call center staff who are really bright and want to do the next thing or front desk staff or other staff who've been like maybe volunteering or working with the organization, but like maybe interested in becoming dental assistants or medical assistants. Oh, I love that idea. So another aspect of staff training that I know you're really passionate about, Amanda, is leadership development. Oh, this is huge. I mean, not only to retain leaders at your organization, because Adrian, you've worked in community health, like you know how hard it is when you're turning over really uh, high level positions, like new COOs <laughs> every couple years, or, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's important to retain and nurture the growth of leadership, especially in healthcare, where there's such a like, organic promotion that happens in health centers? Like how often does the medical assistant then get promoted to the health center manager, then get promoted to be like the director of patient services? Like that is very commonplace in FQHCs, which is awesome, this investment in growing your people. But so often those folks who've been promoted and just risen through the ranks never got formal leadership training, not to mention like work with a leadership team and how the dynamics work with one another. So we are super passionate at Coleman Associates with providing leadership 
training and we, we call it our high impact management program because it covers three areas. It covers like individual growth. It covers team dynamic growth, which I mentioned, but also organizational growth, because if you're going to put into place like these new technologies or this new staff training, you have to make sure the culture of your organization like moves with it. And I think this leadership program can really help tackle those three areas in a way that will help sustain whatever gains you make through this funding, through your training to last for a long time. Yeah, I kind of think of hemp as like, it's the glue that holds the puzzle together, right? Is it's Thank like, you. Yes. It, sticks, it makes it stick and makes it stick around for longer whenever you train your leadership to keep up with it. Because as you, as you improve your frontline staff's game, you got to improve the leadership game to keep up with it. Well said. I love it as the glue, for sure. <laughs> Obviously, Coleman Associates helps folks to train staff members. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we've been preparing in terms of this HAF funding? Part of what we've been preparing has just been because other organizations who've been wanting to do training for a while have reached out to us and been like, all of a sudden we can do everything we've wanted to do because we feel like we can allocate, you know, a, a portion of our budget towards this. You know, we can still get our new EMR, which we'll talk about later and all the other like digital infrastructure that health centers want to do that they should be able to do with this funding. And we also want to bring in Coleman Associates to help train our staff and set us up. So um, we're talking to health centers about DPI training, dramatic performance improvement, collaboratives, or rapid DPIs. That's our training curriculum that basically helps care teams become true team-based care models. Basically, what what health centers have always thought of would be would embody a team-based model of care, meaning. Not everything falls on the provider's shoulders. We help grow medical assistance. I mean, talk about investing in medical assistance. After medical assistants have been through trainings with us, they feel like there's so much more they can do. They're not just taking vitals anymore, you know, or just doing a few like checkmark things. We're really utilizing medical assistance to shepherd providers flow, manage their schedule, do like really important visit prep and run these care team huddles. I mean, that's a lot of what the DPI training does is provide that for care teams. And then what ends up happening at the end of DPI is organizations all of a sudden have this natural increase in productivity. You know, it's not usually the goal of a DPI, but they start seeing more patients because everyone has realized these efficiencies in their model. That means people are just working smarter, not harder. And as a consequence, access opens up for patients. People can see more people in the community. They change their schedule templates. I mean, DPI just covers so many facets of the operations of health centers that it's a really smart investment health centers can be making because it's a one-time spending that pays off for years to come and the return on investment in terms of the number of patients you're seeing, in terms of third next availables becoming really, really low and new schedule templates and how the call center works with the staff. So that's been one element of it. Yeah. And if I can just build on what you were saying, and yeah. one thing I've been thinking about is that natural productivity increase that we tend to see. And if you wanted to learn more about that, you could go back and listen to last week's podcast about what's the ROI of DPI. But if you're thinking about that, you want to make investments that are longer than two years, and you're thinking about how you would continue to afford them is that natural productivity increase can be very helpful. 
The other piece I would add is because folks got so much money and want to really think about their entire continuum of care is the other Mm -hmm. things that we're seeing folks invest in are like behavioral health deep dives to integrate behavioral health, doing referral deep dives to fix referral processes, which um, gives me a headache just thinking about how those can sometimes plague administrators. Mm -hmm. And then um, Mm -hmm. we're also excited about the new care coordination deep dive that to help folks think about how they're coordinating care for the future. Are there other other programs that you're seeing folks do? Well, so it depends on if, if folks have done DPI or not. I would say for, you know, past clients who are thinking about like, what's the next thing <laughs> that maybe they've done DPI before, but they want to make sure, okay, like now I'm setting up for 10 years from now, what should I be doing? One of the cool programs we offer is this new staff orientation program. So we basically help organizations build a DPI orientation program so that every staff member who comes on board is oriented to things that are very DPI specific. So things that have been helping patient access or building natural productivity, we make, we help an organization make sure that every single provider, MA, human resources person, like front desk, anyone who comes on knows terminology from DPI so that it doesn't go away. Because what other organizations talk about is, oh, as we lose staff or staff moves on, or they move to a different city or whatever, some of that like intellectual and historic knowledge of what they did through DPI kind of walks out the door. And so this really helps maintain those concepts so that they don't walk out the door with staff. It's that Studer idea of hardwiring things, right? Which is like taking it that next step and like really embedding it in the culture of your organization so that you don't lose it. And it just becomes something where you don't even remember it's DPI. It's just this way that we do things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we help organizations embed that. We have other sustainment programs like our online learning modules so that team members can continue to refresh on these concepts. So just like we were talking about, this is another way we can do it. And then QV squared and it's quality and exponential value, which is looking at advanced payment models and alternative payment models really um, because more and more health centers are moving towards managed care models and different ways that they get incentivized for providing quality care that's moving away from a fee-for-service model. So if you're thinking about 10 years from now, and if we're really heading down that track, which I think we are, where it'll be less fee-for-service, more paying on certain quality metrics, which a lot of health centers are already getting paid on, thinking about focusing on certain metrics. So we had organizations who we worked with before who were like, we really need to work on our, you know, cervical cancer screening metric or, you know, our colon cancer screening or through HRSA, we want to be focusing on blood pressure management. And so the QV squared program is another one for former clients who are really thinking about preparing for alternative payment models or, or like just getting better in those areas and weaving that into what they did with DPI. Absolutely. If folks want to learn more, they can always check out our website. But what I want to talk about next is, Amanda, how many times do you think you've gone into a health center and you've seen fancy equipment that they bought and they didn't use it? (laughs) Oh, too many times. Kiosks, I think, are the classic one that are just like collecting dust and not being used. I think a lot of people got those fancy tablets for patients to do surveys at the end that no one's using. Um, What are some of the ones you see? I went into one health center and I don't even know, it, it had to have been at least dozens. I don't, I don't want to guess exactly how many, but they got the blood pressure and vital machines that can uh-huh. directly integrate with the EMR, but it was hard to set up. So they're just sitting in their basement. It's so painful, isn't it? Because that technology is so cool. It just hasn't been integrated or people haven't been trained on it well. Right. 
And so it just ends up collecting dust. And so that's why I wanted to spend a good chunk of our time today talking about our recommendations around what we've seen work well in terms of physical and digital infrastructure, because it gives me like heartburn to think about spending that much money on that technology, especially as much money as folks are getting with HAF funding and then seeing it yeah. collect dust. I mean, the, the spending on technology is so exciting that health centers are going to be able to do with this award money. Absolutely. And if I can just make one plug is that Coleman Associates is a big fan of Jim Collins, Good to Great. And I'm obsessed with Chapter 7. The technology is an accelerator. It's one of those things that I had like a, a, like a driveway moment where I was listening to it on an audiobook and I just stayed in my car for a while to finish listening because I am a nerd. But you are. You've book, actually like schooled me in the language to you. Like I've read the book before you, but then you got so embol- like emboldened about technology as an accelerant. So the the thing I want folks to know is there is no technology out there that is going to fix your organization. There is not a magic bullet. It does not exist. The key is choosing technology strategically. And honestly, I would would include DPI and um, a lot of the other trainings that we talked about as technology Mm -hmm. and doing it on purpose and doing it super well. Like you should do less things and do them really, really well to help you meet your goals. Seeing technology or um, other infrastructure pieces collect dust is like the perfect example of not paying attention to results and not focusing on what technology you really need to get where you need to go. So that, Absolutely. that is my plug for being careful. Is there anything yeah. you would add to that? I mean, having said that, I feel like that's the like big umbrella statement for everything we're about to cover because there's so many awesome things organizations can do with technology. So as long as you take Adrian's message to heart, <laughs> now let's get into what are some of those technologies, Adrian, that you're seeing that health centers like need to have so long as they implement them well? So the first one I want to talk about is EMRs or electronic medical records. So I think there are some organizations that are thinking about buying new EMRs, and I don't think that's a necessarily bad idea. I would say that I have seen a lot of organizations change what their EMR is because Mm -hmm. they've gotten so many complaints from staff. And honestly, if there was a perfect EMR or one that I've seen work head and shoulders above others, I would recommend it to you right now. I just haven't seen one. Amanda, have you seen one? Definitely ones that are like a little bit better than others, but you're right. I completely agree with your point that if you don't have the right implementation or the right training to go along with the EMR rollout, then no staff understand all its bells and whistles, which is certainly similar to, I think, what organizations were dealing with when they implemented telehealth platforms. There's a lot of functionality, but if you only know part of it, then you're going to think, hey, this sucks and why doesn't it do this? And it's really like you just need someone helping show you, here's all the things it can do. Invest in your super users, which I guess brings us back to the first bucket we were talking about, Adrian, which is just investing in your workforce. But I feel like that fits with the new EMR. Like if you want to do it, great. If you really have a problem with your EMR, but make sure you're doing it wisely. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with the same problems you had before. So I would say for all organizations, regardless of if they're going to change EMRs, if they're going to keep their EMR, is investing in training, not only really good super users, but honestly, like invest in the fancy, the bells and whistles training for as many staff members as you possibly can, so that you really understand that. And then the other thing that I think is a great investment is streamlining your EMR and kind of customizing the templates. I can't tell you how many times I go into a health center and folks have bought a very expensive EMR and put in all the training, but then they found out about a new requirement from HRSA or from one of their grant funds or whatever, and then they start handing out a piece of paper. It just made me think of one other thing, which is not only thinking about, okay, so say you're an organization who's, you know, you really have an outdated 
EMR. Like say this is something you're gonna spend your money on. Think about all the things attached to the EMR. Think about your patient portal. Think about how your EMR does or doesn't interact with your telehealth platform or how it interfaces with great pre-registration technology. So this idea of the digital front door is basically like different ways patients get access to you. So historically, like, you know, it was just phones and, you know, people walking in and walking in the door. And now it's this digital front door, which is online scheduling, the way you, you know, show your proof of where you fall on the sliding scale, doing sliding scale eligibility, like online versus having to come in. I mean, Adrian, I hope if anything has come out of this pandemic, it's that we will never hand patients a clipboard with a 20-page packet of paperwork and ask them to spend 20 minutes in the waiting room filling this out or like sitting in front of a human filling it out in one of those financial counseling offices, you know, like that should just not be happening. Can I tell you one of my favorite exercises to do with leadership? Okay, yeah. If you're a leader and you aren't sure if your paperwork is too long or not, go and fill it out yourself and see how long time yourself, see how long it takes you and how annoying it is and how many things you have to pull out of your bag or your purse or whatever. (laughs) Yes. And I I mean, that just makes me think, think about your patients where English is not a first language. Yeah. Making sure that your digital front door is translated too. a good part of your digital front door is having a great website that's really user-friendly and has information that patients want. Please don't put something on your website where it's like, here, request an appointment. And you just put your name in there and ask for an appointment. And then maybe somebody gets back to you. But I think the other thing is making sure that it is accessible in the languages that your patients speak. Otherwise, you're missing a huge chunk of your patient. Yeah. And that would be an excellent thing to utilize this funding for is like, there's so many companies who do that of like would translate things, make sure it's a really good translation. But again, to Adrian's point earlier, like not just hiring a service who just spits it out and you're not checking it to make sure it's saying what you want it to say in this other language. So yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing with the digital front door is also like, you know, really look at how have we been scheduling vaccine appointments? Were we using scheduling software that now our patients expect? Things like, here are all the appointment times available for X, just click here to schedule. But obviously the difference with scheduling vaccine appointments to scheduling other appointments is you have to collect a lot more information from your patients who are established based on, you know, UDS requirements. So making sure that whatever software you're picking allows you to do that virtually with patients so that you're never saying, great, now we have your name and your phone number come in for us to get the 15 other things we need from you and do it in person. No, just figure out how to do it in in advance. But I think Adrian, what a lot of people would ask is what about patients who like struggle with having Wi-Fi? I mean, is it realistic to ask them to do all this in advance? It's a a great question. It's really important. And I think the biggest thing that I think about is the more patients that you can get to do online scheduling, because I guarantee you have patients that would prefer doing online scheduling, almost certainly Mm -hmm. anybody who's under the age of 30, right? Mm -hmm. And then like Mm -hmm. maybe even higher than that. But the cool thing about that is if you can siphon patients off or answer a lot of their questions on your website, it's going to decrease the volumes in your phone center so that they can spend more time with patients so that they don't feel the pressure to get off the phone. And those patients who do need more help or don't have great access to Wi-Fi, they have an awesome experience where they don't have to stay on hold. And so I think they really go together. I mean, you just made me think about phone centers and like what funding could go into call centers. Besides, again, coming back to like broken record training for staff who are in the call center and not to mention setting them up with like good systems so that they're not repeatedly making mistakes because you have too many rules about scheduling, which is a whole nother topic I'm not going to get into. I think there's really cool technology about looking at 
data related to call centers. And a lot of health centers already have this, but this, those that don't, that don't have real-time hold times, abandoned call times, a screen that's projecting the results for all the call center to see what's our average call time, how many calls have we left abandoned and like responding to it. I mean, that technology is what I think all call centers need, especially some really cool savvy organizations with the pandemic sent their staff to work remotely. And so maybe it's infrastructure to keep them remote so you can start using your call center for other community events or something. And it's investing in the equipment that these call center reps still need to be working from home. And, you know, the more I've thought about these physical infrastructure pieces is I, I think the key is flexibility because where we see folks be the most successful is whenever they're data centric, because I totally agree with you. If I go into a call center where they don't have that real time data, like you can tell the difference and you can tell the yes. difference in the patient experience. And then the other thing is like making sure that you're set up if we have second waves of COVID or if the variants start spreading or, you know, all of those pieces that you can move people quickly into working from home or working in different spaces or, you know, just being able to move people around that's really critical. But I was just thinking about like remodeling because I know you can't oh, spend yeah. your money on capital stuff, but you can spend some money. And I'm just going to share one example and then I'm going to let Amanda take over because she actually knows what she's talking about. But the coolest health center that I've ever been in, I think, is where they had almost exclusively movable walls. So they could totally oh, reconfigure yes. their whole health center in like 24 hours. And that yes. was so cool. Of course, I think a lot of health centers are going to earmark some funding for remodels. Like it's the chance to upgrade their team-based space. I, I think you're right. I know the example you're talking about where there was flexibility in moving desks around or just investing in, in the the workspaces that could be mobile, like that you, if you're putting down walls or getting those huge cubicles, it's like, we don't know what's going to happen in five years. So we want to make sure that we have desks that could face each other, that we have, you know, desks that we could move to the side of the wall. If now we have care teams who are going to be doing 50% of their care and telehealth, and they're going to be like using a medical assistant to call patients and do intakes over the phone. Like you want a space that can be adapted to that easily. Because I definitely think we're in the beginning stages of seeing how fluid we can be with our services modality, <laughs> like whether it's telehealth, whether it's in person. And if you don't have flexible workspaces to allow for staff to do something either virtually or in person, you're going to be stuck. So you have to be careful about making sure you can get reimbursed for telehealth services. And everyone is kind of holding their breath to see if it lasts beyond like COVID being over. I hope it does last, but you know, that, that will dictate how much people are doing in the future for sure. Especially at FQHCs where you don't have a lot of commercial payers, even though commercial payers are paying for telehealth. Awesome. Well, any final thoughts that you have, Amanda, that you want to share with our listeners? This is like a huge moment in our history for how it's going to advance, how we take care of people in this country and how we serve the underserved because that's who FQHCs primarily serve. Although frankly, like with some of this funding, like, you know, health FQHCs are just going to be on the cutting edge and all patients are going to want to go to them, right? Like yeah. they get this massive, like step forward, right? Like five steps forward with this. So this is, it's really exciting. I 
I can't agree more. So, well, thank you, Amanda, for joining us for this sort of emergency podcast. I'm happy that it's finally a good emergency and not a crappy emergency. So everyone, (laughs) remember to subscribe to the podcast to get updates as we release them. To keep up with all the cheese happenings and updates on HAF funding, follow us on LinkedIn. If you're interested in working with Coleman Associates, email us at notify at colemanassociates.com. That actually goes straight to Amanda and Melissa. Uh, Shout out to Jonathan for all of his podcasting help, and we'll see you next time. Uh